But today, the passages that we have before us, Jesus sets before them a, a, a sober explanation of one of the particular trials that they would face. A sober explanation of a hardship that they would endure in their time and in their day. In the time and place which God entrusted to them as his followers. And so today I want us to hear uh, what it is that he said to them. And, and just what is this situation, this hardship that they endured. But most importantly, I want us to hear what it is that Jesus offers and, and consoles his disciples as they face this hour. So if you would, if you have the bulletin uh, in front of you, I'm going to be reading from uh, two excerpts, one from John 15, starting in verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken with them, they would also be what they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, he will send the when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you, rem you may remember that I told them to you. And later, as he closed his discourse from John 16, and his disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and I will and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone for the father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Father, as we listen in to these words that you spoke to your disciples, as we contemplate the heaviness and, and seriousness of these words. Lord, I pray that in them we might find 
the strength which you provided your followers. Lord, in them we might find the encouragement you promised your followers. In them we might find you, the one whom we follow. So, Father, be with us as we attend to this text this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've, uh, on a few different occasions, I think, uh, talked about my childhood fear of roller coasters. Like, I think all kids are afraid of roller coasters, right? But mine, like, extended, like, a little too far, like, into, like, the awkward stage, right? Like, into, into, like, middle school years, right? Like, fifth or sixth grade, I would not, under any circumstances, be caught on a roller coaster, I hated them. I, I feared them. The, the way that it made me feel made me feel sick and, and gross. But somewhere around that time, uh, something in me started to probably shame and, and uh, shame and embarrassment probably is what it was. But for some reason, I started taking a risk. And, and I jumped whole hog into this roller coaster idea. And I remember one of the very first roller coasters I ever rode. Like, probably the second or third roller coaster I ever rode in my life happened to be what was at the time the, the tallest, fastest, steepest roller coaster in the world. If you've ever uh, been to Cedar Point in Ohio, this is one of their claims to fame. I have two Ohioans here. That's a pretty good ratio for our, uh, for our very small crowd. Uh, that's their claim of fame, right? Is they're, they're one of the amusement parks that's always trying to, to one-up and, and to set the claim. And so I, I ended up there with my, uh, you know, with my family. And, of course, that was the roller coaster they wanted to go on first, right? Right out of the gate. And so all there I was, deadly afraid of roller coasters still, standing uh, on the Mantis was what it was called, the stand-up roller coaster, and, and pulling that, uh, the harness over your chest. And I don't know if you feel like this, maybe it was just my anxieties, but it, it starts to feel like it's suffocating you, right? And the fear makes you pull it even tighter against your chest so that you can't breathe, and it's a stand-up roller coaster, right? So it, it moves up and down. So I pulled it down and I didn't want any wiggle room, right? So I pulled it down so it was like weighing on my shoulders, right? My knees were buckling underneath me. I tried to pull it so tight to make sure that I was safe. And then that torment comes. The torment, if you're afraid of roller coasters, is that, that slow clinking up to the top of the mountain, right? That, the climb up that 150 feet or whatever to the top of this while you're desperately suffocating and in pain from the way you've positioned your harness. I'm feeling claustrophobic, start desperately looking around from your limited range of view and seeing those beautiful stairs on the side and wishing desperately that somehow you could get out of your harness and onto those stairs, onto that you could get off the track because you can see the track ahead of you is about to plunge you into the earth. The fear of that ratcheting makes you waver and your resolve starts to falter. Jesus 
tells these disciples that there is very hard times coming. But he tells them this, he says, because I want to keep you from falling away. I want to keep you as, as the ratcheting goes up from looking from the side and, and looking for the exit row. We are here today in a, a virtually empty sanctuary because we as a, as a society, we as a, as a whole world, right? If we're to believe the experts, we're still ratcheting our way up to the pinnacle of the fear of what the road that lies ahead of us. Right here, we just this weekend had the first deaths reported from the COVID-19 crisis. Right here in Memphis, we're just now starting to see the number of cases exponentially increasing day after day after day. We're watching the market that is starting to, to hemorrhage and, and plummet. We're feeling a couple weeks worth of, uh, of isolation and anxiety and fear, right? The kind of isolation that, that's, that's penetrating. We're on our way up. We haven't even started the free fall yet. And we're already looking for what's the quickest way to get off the roller coaster? What's the quickest way to get off the road that lies ahead of us? So what is it that Jesus tells his disciples? What is it that he coaches them before they get onto the roller coaster cart that will take them up the hill? Jesus, I think, tells them, uh, reassures them of a few very, very, very important things. Things that I think are desperately important for us to remember in our time and in our place and into the task that God has entrusted to us. The first is that a Christian is never asked to walk a road that Christ has not already anticipated. A Christian is never asked to walk down a road that Christ has not already anticipated. You see, the Christians that he spoke to, these disciples that he spoke to, had a different sort of trial in front of them than the one you and I have in front of us. Their trial was that uh, to be a Christ follower following Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension was to have a target placed on your back. You were a target of the Roman Empire, and you were a target of the Jewish leaders. You were a target because you, in a time of great stress and trial, were a threat to the way of life. And so Jesus tells them, very frankly, a time is coming when people will murder you and think that they are offering God a service. It's a dark time ahead of them. But one of the things that Jesus does in this section as he prepares them for that moment is he takes great pains to show them how unsurprising this turn of events is. How unsurprising it is that they would face this hardship. And it's unsurprising first because he said, look, look what they're doing to me. Look what they've done to me. Look at the hardships that they've done in, in God's name to me. He says, remember the words that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. It is normal for you to experience the trials and the hardships that your master has experienced. 
And he tells them in 16, verse 4, I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. You see, Jesus desperately wants them to go into their darkest hour knowing that this is not a surprise, that Jesus is not surprised by the hardship that they face. Instead, quite the opposite. He's already prepared them for it. The road that lay ahead of them was hard and it was steep and it was fast. But it was a road that he had already anticipated and because he had anticipated it, he made provisions for it. Here is where we get one of our verses from last week about the helper who comes. The helper who comes to bear witness, to bear truth, to bear uh, witness to the God of heaven and earth in the midst of great hardship and affliction. It is in the middle of Jesus saying things are going to go from bad to worse for you that he says, I am sending a helper. You see, Jesus is not at all surprised. He knew what was coming. And he knew that if his disciples in the moment of their dark night could remember, if they could know in that hour that what was happening to them was not an accident, was not a fluke, was not some unconstrained chaos, but was an anticipated part of what God was doing in the world, he knew it would help. You see, we're anxious. And one of the reasons that we are anxious is because we feel like the world is out of control. This weekend, uh, this week, I, I watched a little Tim Keller devotional. I actually sent it out to the church. But one of the things that points that he makes in there is that our, our society thinks inherently, uh, subconsciously, that that human beings are in control of the world, right? You could line this up like a, a, a proof, like you used to do in math class or logic or or whatever, you know, depending on what kind of education I, you got, I, I suppose, right? But the first proposition is, is that we make a declaration that's very illegitimate. We say humans are in control of the world. And so when a disaster comes of the kind that we are experiencing, and it becomes abundantly clear that humans are definitely not in control of this thing, right? Humans are desperately, definitely not in control even of, of our economy, right? As we see scrambling and trillions of dollars being spent on aid that, that who knows how long it will last or what the outcome will be, that we are death, deeply impotent to control our world. And so because we've assumed humans are in control of the world and we find out that humans are not in control of the world, therefore we respond and say, this world is out of control. This world is in utter and pure chaos. But of course, if we listen to the voice of Jesus, we know that that has never been the case. That humans have never been in control of the world. That the world, as Rachel reminded us in her prayer, sits in the hand of a heavenly father. And if we remember that, if we remember that Jesus anticipated the dark nights that we walk through, it transforms our ability to see the world not as a state of, of pure and utter chaos, but one of controlled opportunity. Because we have a God who has promised that he will work all things, even the evil things, even the dark things, even the... The, 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 the deadly missiles of the enemy thrown at our way, that he will capture them and turn them back to bring our good and our salvation. That we can go into this dark night knowing that 
that this roller coaster we're on has been designed by an engineer whose knowledge surpasses all that we can imagine. That this roller coaster we're on has been inspected and, and re-inspected. That indeed the very cart that we're on is controlled by the hands of one who loves us. So while the roller coaster plinks its way up the mountain, we don't need to waver. We don't need to falter. We don't need to try to find our way out of our harness and onto the steps because we have a God who is in control and who has anticipated our needs. Jesus doesn't stop there, though. As we look at this text, we can see that he wants to reassure them of something else. And, and I think it's this, that a Christian is never asked to walk down a road that Christ has not already walked ahead of us. That a Christian is never asked to walk down a road where Christ has not already gone, down a path that Jesus has not already traveled. In the same verses as he says that uh, a servant is not greater than his master, he acknowledges a second fact. I've already experienced the persecution. He acknowledges the fact that, that whatever threat and danger be, would befall them, he himself would feel the nails first. That whatever dangers lay before them, whatever hatred would be spewed in their direction, that he will have received it before they will. That Jesus, God who took on flesh of humanity, bore the same trials and tribulations that we do. I want to point this out because uh, while the trial that's ahead of us, and I've said it already, is very different than the trial that these disciples face, in some ways it might not end up being that different. You see, as the world feels the pressure uh, and, the, and the, the tension, right, in the same way that the Jews in the synagogues felt the oppression of the Roman Empire, there is a, a tendency to lash out, right? A tendency to lash out at those who are perceived to be the problem, to be the scapegoats, to be the enemies, right? Even already as in these few weeks as our, our society has felt the burden, right? And has thus far responded, I would should say, in a very Christian way. Right? This social distancing plan is a very Christian ethical plan. It's a plan that preserves life. It inconveniences the healthy for the sake of the vulnerable. It's a very Christian plan, but yet already we've seen cracks as those in society seek scapegoats. And so I have friends of, of various Asian American lineages from all across the the. The, the United States of America, who have already reported firsthand reports of an increased number of, of direct racist comments, direct racist, race, racist suspicions, right? Already they are being called out, whether they're of Chinese lineage or not, they're being called out and attacked for bringing this ailment upon America, and if Christians are to be Christians in this time and place, we will, one, recognize that our Asian brothers and sisters are experiencing direct persecution. But two, if we are the kinds of people who represent the truth and love of Jesus, then the way we talk and the way we rebuke those who do that persecution will, in turn, afflict us. 
right? Already we have been wondering how is it that we come out of this stage, right? How is it that we, we get our, our, our world back in order? And as those debates come to, to, uh, to fruition, you can already see this week the framing of that discussion being that it's, it, it's either about preserving the lives Right, specifically the, uh, the lives of, of elderly, right? Or are we going to preserve our economy? And of course, that's a, a, a silly dichotomy in a, in a number of different ways, but it is points out this fact, right? We as Christians from Genesis 1 all the way through the Bibles, there's almost nothing more clear in the scriptures than the Christians are about the preservation of life, not the preservation of a way of life. Right? The Christians are to do everything in their power to preserve life, life of all forms, life that's not based upon utility, life that's not built upon age. If you want to embrace a Christian ethic, I could argue it probably literally from every book of the Bible that one of the clearest commands we have is that every human is made in the image of God and thus has intrinsic value to be protected. So if... And I don't think this is an either or. But if it should come to that, Christians are the ones who would gladly give up their economic life for the sake of their brother. You start spouting that in certain contexts. And the persecution, the rejection will come to you. And if it does, and know that Jesus has already been down that road before you. But perhaps in, for many of us, this different trial will bring a little bit different kinds of symptoms, but it, while it's a different trial, it's the same hope. You see, for many of us, we go, if we go out into the world, we go out with a deadly fear that some sort of contact with others will lead to a sickness that could take our lives and know that Jesus who went and ministered and touched lepers, right? A Jesus who went and ministered to those who were dead. A Jesus who engaged in a world, a crowds of people, knew what it felt like to be afraid of your life if you got too close to someone else. Some of us will, will have a deadly fear as we send our, our wives and husbands, our children into the the hospitals of our world to care for others right and we will fear whether our, our loved ones are being provided for with fear whether they are being taken and we know of a savior who on his cross in his greatest agony his greatest priority one of his greatest priorities was to make sure that his mother was taken care of you see jesus knew the anxiety of fearing for those who you love some of us will uh, fear that, that just the burden of anxiety and the mental health that, that is breaking in us by the day, and we're afraid that we can't come back from that. Know that you have a God who lamented his coming suffering and death to the point that he bled, he, he sweated blood, the scriptures tell us. Right? For those who have a fear that this recession and how long it will last 
and those who are out of work and not sure if, if this could get to the place where they lose their house. You have a Savior who knew uh, what it was to face poverty, who knew what it was to face even homelessness. Remember his words as he said, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. For those of us who fear the isolation and loneliness that, that seems to penetrate our minds and hearts, we have a God who even in these verses, 1632, looks at his disciples and says, you're all going to leave me. Jesus knew the fears of being left alone. In fact, there is simply no trial, no hardship, no burden in this world which is unknown, which is unexperienced by God. Because when God took on flesh, he ensured that he would walk down every road that we walk ahead of us. And this transforms our wavering and our faulting away from a, a fear of a God who afflicts us from up high to a view of a God who is deep in the trenches with us. A God who sympathizes and empathizes with us in our brokenness, who cries the same tears that we cry. And so if we understand that no Christian walks down a road that Christ has not walked, it transforms us from the need to, to waver and falter and to get off the rail track, and it transforms us into people who worship a God who loves them. Finally, in these words, Jesus is pointing out, and he's highlighting it in big neon letters for them, is that a Christian is never asked to walk down a road that Christ has not already overcome. Never asked to walk down a road that Christ has not already overcome. You could say in a lot of ways this is very similar to the last point, right? That Jesus has already gone ahead of us down these roads. But in fact, uh, it is quite different, right? It's quite different to have a shared experience and it's quite a different to have overcome it. But he says, I have said these things to you that in, you, in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. What is he talking about? What is he referring to? In the context, it's, it's I think, unambiguous. That Jesus is referring to the resurrection from the dead that he is about to do in the coming days. The resurrection from the dead because every grief and hardship, if you have read the Bible, if you've heard the story of the Bible, every grief and hardship comes down to the final enemy and that is death. And it is that enemy, it is that bitterness that Jesus overcomes, he defeats, he conquers. And if God is going to transform your view of suffering and hardship, you, it's desperately important that you understand what this means. Because I think one of the natural ways that we think about it is that overcome means that Jesus uh, just experienced the hardships, right? Or, or that he overcomes or, or, or survives or, or perseveres. Like, you know, like someone who runs a marathon, say. Right, and they, they overcome the, the knee injury that they had in their training, and they're able to, to finish the race by limping across the finish line. Right, we, we think Jesus overcame in that 
he felt some of those same things we did, and he made it to the end. But in that line of thinking, then Jesus is, is nothing more than an aspirational model, right? He's the God who, he finished it, so therefore it must be possible for me to do the same. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says that in me you may have peace. You see, I uh, overcame here in, in the, the Greek. That word overcome is not some uh, generic high, you know, some kind of wimpy or generic perseverance word. This is a word that specifically means to conquer, right? To defeat, to put an end to that enemy. Uh, recently, I saw the, the movie Harriet, you know, that came out last fall. The story of uh, the great Harriet Tubman and the way that she uh, escaped from slavery and, and by herself found her way across the Pennsylvania border to, to freedom. It is this remarkable story of how she overcame those odds. But it's fascinating because much of the story hinges upon the fact that after she did this, right, and she said, I want to go back so that I, I've overcome these difficulties so now I can go back and bring others with me. And everyone looks at her and goes, well, no, 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 no. That was just kind of dumb luck, right, that you got through the first time. No, 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 you need a more sophisticated plan. You need more people. And, and one of her great umps is to say, look, I have accomplished something. I know what to do, and I can bring others to freedom with me. And if we look at Harriet, we're getting closer to the story of Jesus because Jesus, when he goes to the cross, Jesus, when he rises from the dead, he actually escapes from death. And he doesn't just escape, though. You see, Harriet just escapes. Harriet overcomes by, by getting away, but her, her, her victory was conditional, right? Her victory was conditional because a slave catcher could easily take her back into bondage. Right when the Fugitive Slave Act is passed, she is in threat of being captured any place and anywhere and immediately brought back into bondage. Her victory was conditional, and the freedom she offered those who she went to rescue was only probable, right? She says, I know the steps that need to happen to get you to save slavery. I don't know if we can do it, right? But you're more likely to succeed if I'm with you than if you're on your own. See, Jesus' victory it didn't just accomplish something, right? He didn't just overcome and, and defeat his, his slaveholders of the slavery of, of sin and death in a conditional or, or probable sense. He defeated it so that no one would ever have to taste it in the same way again. If we were to take the story of Harriet and make it more comparable, we would say that somehow, in some way, Harriet crossing the line into the Pennsylvania border immediately freed slaves of every time and place. That, that Harriet crossing the border somehow attained victory. That it was a, a far more universal emancipation of proclamation. That it was the thing which brought freedom to the rest of the slaves because no one would ever have to feel what she felt again. When the Bible talks about the death that Jesus dies, it says, look, you're going to experience death, but you're never going to experience death like Jesus did. You're going to experience hardship, but you will never experience the kinds of hardships that Jesus did. 
Jesus' resurrection means that however death finds you, it holds no power over you. That death is temporary because your resurrection's already been guaranteed. And so when we taste the bitter cups of trials and hardships, we are just getting a, a, a mere taste. We're just getting a a little glimpse of the road that Jesus has already walked and already won on our behalf. We get to experience just a little bit of the loneliness that he felt, a little bit of the anxiety, of the fears and the pains that he experienced, so that in our trials and in our hardships, in our bitterness, We find out more of who he is. We find out exactly who he is and what he has done. And so it transforms the fearful ratcheting up the mountain as we walk. Not that pain and suffering won't come, but in those pain and suffering, we will see and know the face of Almighty God clearer and better. More than ever, we will know who he is and know what he did for us. And so we don't need to waver. We don't need to falter. We don't need to try to find our ways out of the harness as the coaster takes us to the top of the hills because in our suffering, we will find a Christ that has already overcome the tribulations we know. As we go through these upcoming weeks and months, as we go through even the next few years, right, as we await uh, and and long for our, our scientists and doctors to find means and ways to bring about a more lasting victory over this particular disease, I don't know what's gonna come our way. I don't know what sufferings will afflict our little church family personally. I don't know what hardships will afflict you personally, in your family and in your friends and contacts, wherever home may be. But I know this, that our sufferings, our brokenness, our fears of the future have already passed before the mind of our Father because He has anticipated every step of your life. Not a hair can fall from your head that the Father in heaven does not know about. I know that the suffering of our lives have already passed before the eyes of the Father as he looked out into the world as Jesus walked down the road of this life that the Father knows from ground level what sufferings we have. I know that whatever sufferings our lives encounter and whatever dangers we face in the future have passed before the hands of the Father as Jesus overcame death on the cross. I don't know what life will look like over the coming months. I don't know what hardships we will set before us. But one of the uh, things that I'm reading recently is this little book of of sermons written by um, a, a German pastor Helmut Thielke, who who ministered in Stuttgart, Germany during the Second World War. And what it is, is it's his uh, sermon series he preached 
uh, as the uh, Allies marched into Germany, as, as bombings were, were, were barricading all around us. And so he preached these sermons literally to uh, not an empty room like we have, but to a room that was ready to be emptied in a second. The second the, the sirens started to, to, to blare. And in fact, uh, by the time he finished his sermon series, right, over the course of the weeks that he preached the sermon series, his church would be demolished. The building itself would be caved in. And so he begins by preaching in this grand, old, uh, you know, beautiful church. And by the end, he's preaching it to a group of believers huddled around the ruins of their old church. And so I've been reading some of, of the the ways that he preached and encouraged his people. And so I want to I want to close here today just by by reading a little bit better cuz he's smarter and, and better than me. So uh, let me close by reading you his words. And since our sufferings must first pass by him before it can strike me. There happens what what always happens when a thing or a person is looked upon by the eyes of God, a great transformation takes place. Sufferings become trials which are meant to be endured in order that I may be purged and refined like a precious metal of gold. In times of terror, in which the furies of man's brutality, blindness, and hubris are unleashed, become times of God's visitation. The dreadful valleys of the shadow which I must traverse become the places where I learn to know the good shepherd and to test his rod and his staff. And so we could go on at length describing every conceivable terror from the nights when the screaming bombs fall to the, lo to the loneliness of war widows, from homelessness of thousands to the hopeless frustration of the soldier, young or old, who has been torn away from his job and his education and despairs of ever finding his way back to normal life. I say that we can enumerate them all, and they're all evil things which are not in the Father's plan of creation. But we can also show how, or at least point to the direction in which they are transformed when they pass through the Father's hands and how the mask of fate suddenly becomes the Father's face. That is my prayer for our church, that we would come to see that our sufferings have come and passed through the God who made heavens and earth, that we would go through them and that we would know him and the beauty and the joy of his resurrection all the more because of it. Pray with me. God, we gather this morning, Lord, and we don't know if we've reached the top of the hill. We don't know if there's a few more ratchets to go before uh, we plunge onto the next stage of our roller coaster. And yet, God, you have promised us your presence in ways that, that utterly transform our experience of this ride. And so, Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would attend to each one of us where we are in the particulars of our burdens, in the particulars of our sorrows, in the particulars of our fears. Lord, that we would know that we do not go alone, but we are following the road that you have walked ahead of us. Be with us, I pray.
in Jesus' name. Amen.